From a jack to a king From loneliness to a wedding ring I played an ace and I won a queen And walked away with your heart From a jack to a king With no regret I stacked the cards last night Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 of the Goots and Trumps podcast here on the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast network. Today's show is part 1 of a new mini-series called Joined at the Wrist, a detailed look back at the rivalry between Kazuchika Okada and Hiroshi Tanahashi from New Japan Pro Wrestling. In order to give this episode a little more structure, I've divided it into four chapters. Chapter 1 looks at their first ever meeting, a relatively unknown match in 2010. Chapter 2 takes a little diversion down memory lane as we revisit one of the great footballing upsets from the 1990 World Cup. Chapter 3 looks at their famous IWGP title match at the New Beginning show in 2012. And finally, Chapter 4 looks at the implications of that match, as well as some childhood music nostalgia. Before we start the show, I'd like to thank everyone who listened to episode one. I was so happy with all the lovely feedback and messages of support I received about it. A lot of time and effort goes into writing, researching and recording these shows, and your kindness really does make it all worthwhile. You can, as always, follow the podcast on Twitter, at Boots Trunks, and the podcast network, at WDKWPN. And finally, before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout out to my good friend W.H. Park over at Post Wrestling. He and Dylan Fox recently recorded an episode of the Long and Winding Royal Road podcast, an amazingly detailed history of the career of Toshiaki Kawada, which serves as a nice accompaniment to episode one of this podcast. The detail on there is really something else, and it comes with my highest possible recommendation. Their kind words on there were hugely appreciated. And now, on with the show, as the Boots and Trunks podcast presents part one of Joined at the Wrist, the Okada Tanahashi story. Chapter one, endings and beginnings. Sometimes, in order to tell a story properly, it is necessary to start not at the beginning, but rather at the end. When Kazuchika Okada and Hiroshi Tanahashi squared off in Dallas on night one of the 2019 G1 Climax, it was the final act of a rivalry that had spanned the entire decade. 
it was thoroughly fitting that the match should take place on US soil, for this rivalry had been the key part in the company's huge international growth. For many Western fans in attendance, this series of matches had been their gateway into becoming lifelong fans of Japanese wrestling. This generation's 1994 Super J Cup, if you like. A whole culture of online wrestling fandom had sprung up around the New Japan boom, boosted by the critical acclaim showered on the promotion by prominent voices such as Dave Meltzer. The owner of the Voices of Wrestling website, Rich Kreich, attributes the website's very existence to this particular rivalry. New Japan Pro Wrestling in 2019 was a very different place to the New Japan of 2010, when Okada and Tanahashi first locked horns. Fans these days have live access to every single show via New Japan World. Back in 2010, we were reliant on more nefarious means with which to follow along, often weeks after the time. The mere idea of live English commentary would have been unfathomable back in 2010, never mind for every show. In April 2019, the promotion had done the unthinkable and sold out Madison Square Garden, once the sole stomping ground of WWE. Between 2010 and 2019, Okada and Tanahashi would share a New Japan ring a total of 52 times, sometimes teaming together, but usually as opponents. There would be 14 singles matches between them. They would wrestle eight times for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship and four times during the G1 Climax. At the time of recording, their career singles record stands at six wins for Okada, five for Tanahashi and three draws. As the closeness of the record suggests, there has never been much between them, with the possible exception of their very first meeting all the way back in 2010. When he stepped into the ring on January the 31st, 2010, on day four of the New Japan Circuit Tour to face Hiroshi Tanahashi, Kazuchika Okada barely resembled the superstar he would later become. Dressed in the traditional young lion attire of plain black trunks, with nondescript generic entrance music, he cuts a lanky, somewhat awkward figure. There is no shower of dollar bills here, no ostentatious jewellery or gaudy ring jacket. His physique has not yet fully filled out, and he has yet to indulge his future penchant for bleached blonde hair and garish ring gear. However, even though he is but a young lion, we see little glimpses of the spiky, rebellious attitude that would later inspire the Rainmaker gimmick. As Tanahashi makes his way to the ring, Okada very pointedly turns his back to the ace, much to the dismay of referee Tiger Hattori. He goes out of his way to not acknowledge him in any way, as if to do so would be to show him too much respect. You can see that even the unflappable ace is a little taken aback and perturbed. Even at this early stage, before ever a rivalry exists, Okada has shown he can get under the ace's skin. Tanahashi at this point of his career is already well established as the top guy of the company. He's already a four-time IWGP heavyweight champion. The temptation is strong to look for narrative and nuance in this little heralded encounter. In reality, it's a routine win for a top guy against a young lion about to embark on his excursion. The match very much follows the well-established pattern of a New Japan young lion versus upper card veteran match. For the most part, Tanahashi dominates. It's a Tanahashi match, so of course he targets the leg, and even here we see him flexing his mat wrestling muscles, truly one of the all-time greats at making every part of his matches interesting. Whatever the stage, 
whatever the importance of the match, classical pro wrestling will always hit the right spot. There's definitely chemistry here, even at this early stage in Okada's development. At one point, he mocks Tanahashi's signature pose on the second turnbuckles. It's a glimpse of the natural cockiness from which the Rainmaker character would later develop. As befits a young line, Okada also shows customary fire and defiance. He's clearly psyched up at this opportunity to show he can hang with the ace. Even at this early stage, his dropkick is a thing of real beauty, and he makes sure to show it off on more than one occasion. The nuts and bolts of what would become a familiar routine are already there. The kip-up, the high-angle German suplex, the athleticism that belies his lanky appearance. However, after a flurry of slaps from Okada, Tanahashi has had enough of his impudence and puts away the young upstart with a routine high-fly flow. No fluid, epic closing stretch here. At least not this time. A post-match handshake ends their business in amicable fashion, and it's easy to believe that Tanahashi will not give his young opponent a second thought for quite some time. Indeed, in an interview with sports website The Ringer in 2019, Tanahashi remembers little of their initial bout, except to recall telling the young man to work on his physique to make it more firm and strong, and praising his drop kicks. In truth, this match is merely a preamble to a post-match attack from Tori Yanu, who at the time was embroiled in a feud with Tanahashi. It's a match for the completionists, worth seeking out as an interesting little hidden gem rather than for its bell-to-bell quality. Indeed, it's not even up on New Japan World, but instead can be found hidden away on YouTube. No one at that point not least Tanahashi and Okada, could possibly have foreseen the story that would unfold over the coming years. Okada would immediately head to the US for a less than stellar excursion in TNA wrestling. Okada's time in America has become something of a source of derision for Western fans, yet another stick with which to beat the hapless Nashville promotion. He is mainly used as an enhancement talent, getting limited TV time or short matches on their B-show, Explosion. A brief run as Samoa Joe's sidekick ultimately amounts to nothing. In an interview with the New Japan website last year, Okada described how lonely he was in America. Despite his reasonable command of English, he often had no one with whom to practice and further improve his command of the language. TNA's handling of Okada is rumoured to have been one of the key factors in the collapse of their working relationship with New Japan soon afterwards. Despite this, Okada himself credits his US experience with teaching him the importance of the entertainment side of wrestling and how crucial it is to develop a unique and distinct character. In 2017, it was reported by Mike Johnson that Impact Wrestling Management, in an attempt to repair relations with New Japan, had even gone as so far as to apologise for their treatment of Okada. While Okada's stock could not have been lower in America, Tanahashi's career was reaching new heights. At Wrestle Kingdom 5, On January 4, 2011, he wins the IWGP heavyweight title for the fifth time, beating Satoshi Kojima. He holds the title for the entire year, a run that includes stellar bouts against Yuji Nagata, Tetsuya Naito and Shinsuke Nakamura. But around the corner lies Wrestle Kingdom 6, and with it the emergence of a surprising new challenger. Upon his return to the US, Okada is thrust immediately onto the biggest possible stage, At Wrestle Kingdom 6, on January 4th, 2012, he faces Yoshihashi, his fellow trainee from the dojo, himself also returning from excursion in Mexico. To say that Okada's re-debut is less than auspicious is being extremely kind. 
His look has definitely improved since we last saw him. He has clearly taken heed of Tanahashi's advice while in America, and he is noticeably bulkier. Gone are the black hair and black trunks, replaced with a heavy tan, bleached hair, and lots and lots of gold. In appearance, at least, he somewhat resembles the rainmaker we now know today. However, appearances are very much where the similarities stop. Everything about the match feels off. Yoshihashi's new Rudo character feels forced and creates an awkward heel versus heel dynamic, with Yoshihashi pushing the referee around and Okada playing the new money brat weighed down with ostentatious jewellery. The crowd clearly has no idea who to cheer for and instead simply sits in awkward silence. The match is brief, lasting less than five minutes and thoroughly forgetful. On paper, the logic is sound. A quick decisive win for Okada to immediately establish him as a threat at the top of the card. In practice, however, it does him more harm than good. There's little or no chemistry between the two, despite their time together as young lines. The match is dominated by clunky kick-punch offence and has an abrupt finish that catches everyone by surprise, and not in a good way. Even his finisher, the Rainmaker, is still a work in progress, coming across as a weak version of a neckbreaker rather than the ripcord lariat it would soon become. Okada rapidly exits the scene, as if embarrassed to savour this scruffiest of victories. Even Dave Meltzer is yet to jump upon the Okada bandwagon, describing him in the following week's Observer as looking like a male Shinobu Kandori and completely unconvincing as the cocky playboy. At this point, any notions of him ever becoming a big-time player in New Japan seem fanciful. Tanahashi, meanwhile, faces Minoru Suzuki in the main event, in a bout pitting the loyal New Japan ace against a dangerous freelancer. In a good match that never reaches the heights of their future encounters, it is Tanahashi who once again prevails. This is his 11th defence, a new record for title defences in a single reign. A little nugget of info to be stored away in the memory bank and revisited once again in 2018. He has seemingly beaten all challengers, the unquestionable top guy in the company. It is little surprise then that the Tokyo Dome crowd reacts with open dissatisfaction when it is Okada, with his ill-fitting black suit and terrible haircut, who emerges on the rampway to challenge Tanahashi for the title yet. Otsukare Samudis, a Japanese expression that does not have a direct English translation but roughly means, thanks for the effort. The Rainmaker's words to Tanahashi are very deliberately meant as a backhanded compliment, a disingenuous put-down of his epic title reign. Tanahashi's retort, that Okada is a long way from being IWGP worthy, is equally dismissive. Again, all well and good on paper, except the crowd simply isn't having it and aren't afraid to let Okada know it. It's the kind of heat that every wrestler dreads, being booed not because of their character work, but because the fans simply aren't buying what he's selling. It feels like a damp squib ending to the biggest show of the year, an unworthy challenger coming out to set up what seems certain to be an easy 12th title defence for the ace. In the month between Wrestle Kingdom and their scheduled match at the New Beginning show in Osaka, New Japan throw everything possible at the wall in order to give Okada more credibility. He finds backup and a home in Shinsuke Nakamura's villainous Chaos Stable. He recruits the wily and influential Gato as his corner man. On the 29th of January, at Corican Hall, 
he teams with Nakamura against Tanahashi and Tetsuya Naito. This is a real hidden gem of the match. A fiery, compact 20-minute encounter that gives you just enough Okada-Tanahashi interactions to whet the appetite for their upcoming title match. There's a real fresh feeling to the New Japan main event scene in 2012. New rivalries are being established, new alliances are being formed. I must thank the peerless Simon of the Handwork Reviews blog, that's at Handwork Reviews on Twitter, for the recommendation by the way. Everyone should be following and reading his incredible next level work. He'd hate me for saying this, but he truly is the best at what he does. Sadly, the match is not available on New Japan World, but is nonetheless well worth going the extra mile to seek out. Already looking more comfortable in the role of Rainmaker, Okada secures a confidence-boosting pinfall win over Tanahashi, who appears to be taking the young pretender a little lightly. The stage is set for their first ever IWGP Heavyweight Title Showdown. Chapter 2. The Indomitable Lions You always remember your first World Cup the best. For me, it was Italian 90. I was nine years old. Ireland had qualified for the first time and the entire country was gripped with football fever. It was a magical time in the lives of anyone who lived through it. The months before the tournament were filled with feverish anticipation. The draw for the group stages happened the previous December, and the day of the opening game, the 11th of June 1990, felt like it would never come around. Reading about it now, and watching the footage back, it soon becomes apparent that the 1990 World Cup might have been the worst of all time. With only 2.2 goals per game, it was the lowest scoring tournament in history. The football served up was so turgid and negative that it prompted the introduction of the backpass rule that fundamentally altered the way the game was played. But none of that mattered one bit to us back in 1990. All the talk in the schoolyard was of the galaxy of exotic superstars that we were going to see that summer. We all collected World Cup 90, a weekly magazine and sticker album that was assembled in a special commemorative folder. It would go on sale in the local newsagents every Friday, the highlight of every week. It was through this magazine that I first learned of Luther Matthias, Careca, Roberto Baggio, Marco van Basten. In those days, there was no internet, no readily available videos and highlight reads. Italian football had not yet reached their TVs on Channel 4. English football was still insular and a few years removed from the formation of the Premier League, which brought with it the likes of Bergkamp, Cantona and Klinsmann. One name jumped off the pages to me above all others, however. One Diego Armando Maradona. I had read of his exploits at the previous World Cup in Mexico in 1986. How this diminutive genius had single-handedly, pardon the pun, carried this Argentine team to a famous victory. Without ever having seen the goal, or even a replay of it, I could recite the names of the English players he had left in his wake as he danced past them all to score the greatest goal of all time in the quarter-final. His mystique was only further enhanced in my mind by his audacity in pulling off the greatest sporting heist of all time, the infamous Hand of God goal on the very same day. And on the 11th of June, 1990, I was finally, finally going to see him play. The opening match of the tournament would see the champions Argentina play against the Cameroon. If Maradona's Argentina felt exotic, 
then the Cameroon were a completely unknown quantity. In my mind, there would only be one winner, and the big question of the day was not who would win, but by how many, and how many of those would Maradona score. Reading up on the circumstances surrounding the match, my childish assessment was not far off the mark. The Cameroon side, or the indomitable lines as they were also known, was comprised of a group of veteran journeymen, most of whom plied their trade in the lower divisions of French football. Their preparations had been shambolic, and the squad were deeply divided after a row over appearance fees. Their manager, whose only previous management experience was a single season in the Russian third division, did not even speak French or English. He had to communicate with the players via a translator, who doubled as the team's bus driver. At that year's African Cup of Nations, they had suffered an ignominious first-round exit. On the eve of the World Cup, their best-known player and goalkeeper was dropped from the team for openly stating that they were almost certainly going to exit the tournament without any points. His replacement was so surprised to be picked that his wife had already gone shopping when the news of his selection broke, and she didn't even see the game. They were rated by the bookies as a 1,000 to 1 outside shot to win the tournament. The Cameroon weren't so much no-hopers as the team that even the no-hopers could easily beat. I vividly remember the day of the game, how the preceding opening ceremony felt like it would never end. I sat cross-legged on the floor in front of the TV, eagerly awaiting the one-sided hammering that was about to unfold. But the underdogs had other ideas. Not only did they not read the script, they completely tore it up. What's most striking about the game, looking back at it 30 years later, is their complete lack of respect for their more illustrious opponents. Their tactics were simple and brutal. If it wore a blue and white shirt, they would kick it as hard as they could. And it worked. Even Maradona, who spent his career brushing off foul play from less skilled opponents, was knocked out of his stride. One of the moments that has stuck in my head ever since was when, two minutes from the end, Claudio Canigia, Argentina's blonde-haired striker, went on a run down the right wing. When the first wild tackle came flying in, he somehow stayed on his feet. And even the second, equally wild, isn't enough to halt his run. The third, however, cannot even be described as a tackle, more so an assault. A waist-high lunge that sent him flying up in the air, earning the Cameroon their second sending off of the game. The only goal of the game came from their striker, Francois Omambiek, a name etched indelibly in my memory to this very day. It was a strange and scruffy goal. Omambiek rising like a salmon to direct a textbook header towards goal. Powerful and all as the header was, it was straight at the Argentine keeper, Neri Pompidou. In keeping with his team's overall display, however, Pompidou reacted a split second too late and allowed the ball to agonisingly trickle almost in slow motion under his arm and over the line. Argentina could not believe it. The crowd could not believe it. I, sitting at home on my floor in front of the TV, could not believe it. Even now it seems a bit like something out of a fantasy. Reading back the newspapers of the time, what becomes quickly apparent is that this was not some lucky smash-and-grab raid by the winners. Even with nine men, the reports are all unanimous that the Cameroon deserved their win. Their tactics may have been crude and unlawful at times, but they were nonetheless highly effective. 
Cameroon neutralised Maradona mainly by kicking him, wrote Matthew Engel in The Guardian. He spent much of the game horizontal despite wearing calf pads as well as shin pads. His 10 teammates seemed too stunned to make any trouble, but they were kicked as well, if they even got in the way, he continued. Maradona himself, however, was the first to admit they had been beaten by the better team. I cannot argue, and I cannot make excuses. If Cameroon won, it's because they were the better side. This was no fluke. The better team won, wrote David Lacey in The Guardian. They won, moreover, after finishing with nine men on the field. Such was their superiority that the Africans still finished looking as if they had more men on the pitch than their hapless opponents. The truth was that Argentina, the champions, had completely underestimated their opponents, who came in with the perfect game plan. It was a seismic and historic victory with far-reaching repercussions. For on that day, not only did the Cameroon win a football game, they also finally won credibility both for themselves and for African football as a whole. The indomitable Lions have truly lived up to their name. Chapter 3. New Beginnings On the 12th of February 2012, at the aptly named The New Beginning Show, Hiroshi Tanahashi is in a similar place to Maradona's Argentina. He has just broken Yuji Nagata's record for the most IWGP heavyweight title defences in history. He has held the belt for 404 days, only a few months shy of Shinya Hashimoto's record for longest ever title reign. Like the Argentine team, he is seen as the gold standard, the undisputed best in the company. He is fast running out of credible opponents. Before him, in Kazuchika Okada, stands a barely credible challenger. No one in attendance, not least the ace himself, believes that this will be anything but a routine victory. Let's get it out of the way from the start. If you're someone that's taken the trouble to listen to this podcast, you almost certainly already know the result of the match. And even if by some chance you don't, you've surely guessed after my not-so-subtle breakdown of football's greatest upset earlier. Yes, Okada defeats Tanahashi here, and in doing so begins a nine-year run in which he becomes the main focus of the promotion, eventually usurping his rival as the ace. What's far more interesting, however, is how the story is told, and the individual performances of both men in doing so. Recent wrestling history has conditioned us to almost expect a top guy to be someone that relinquishes their spot only under great duress. Whether it's Hogan kicking out just after a three-count and stealing the post-match limelight, the conniving, incessant backstage politicking of Triple H, the petulant histrionics of Shawn Michaels, or Brock Lesnar's lazy lack of cooperation. People doing the right thing in this business is never a given. It is so refreshing to see a top guy so invested in a storyline and in his company's future that he is willing to fully commit to elevating a young talent, even if it makes his own character look foolish. And that's exactly what Tanahashi does at the new beginning. Right from the outset, he gives the impression that he's not taking the challenge of this lanky upstart as seriously as he should. His demeanour, as he makes his way to the ring, is too relaxed, too jovial. He seems more interested in greeting fans than he is in his opponent. He has the look of a man going for a game of five-a-side with his mates, instead of a man about to line out for the cup final. Even in the pre-match stare-down, Tanahashi seems dismissive 
even a little disinterested, whereas Okada looks super focused. At every step, he is utterly committed to the story of the match. He makes mistakes, as if to convey the idea that he is not quite on his game as he usually would be in a big match. Take for example the opening exchanges, where he loses out to a simple shoulder block, as if to show he has underestimated Okada's raw power. The greatness of Hiroshi Tanahashi lies in his ability to use the simplest of classic pro wrestling techniques to tell the most wonderful, meaningful stories. It's not the kind of storytelling you get from WWE, where they beat you over the head incessantly with their narrative, as if they don't trust the viewer's comprehension skills. It's subtle and layered, but it's absolutely there if you take the time to look for it. In a departure from his normal tried and tested routine, he casually applies a headlock for a prolonged period. The implication is again that he thinks he won't need to get out of second gear to win this match. Okada, on the other hand, must have felt tremendous pressure going into this match. His failure to convince anyone of his credibility at Wrestle Kingdom must have stung and led to all kinds of soul-searching and self-doubt. The muted response he gets when his name is announced would have done little to soothe his nerves. These days, of course, we take the greatness of Okada almost for granted. But at this stage of his career, in 2012, he still has it all to prove. Indeed, when we talk about Okada's place amongst the greats, the way he manages to turn things around in the few short weeks between Wrestle Kingdom and the new beginning is one of the major strings to his bow. Okada performs on this night like a man who's been main eventing for years. He carries himself with an air of authority that was sadly lacking in January. Even his hair, now an obnoxious shade of purple, looks better and more suited to the playboy character he is trying to portray. Most importantly, on this night, he has a plan. There is substance to back up his ostentatious style. He focuses on Tanahashi's neck, a logical scheme, given that his finisher directly impacts that body part. And the work he does on the neck is interesting, consistent and compelling from the start. He uses the guardrail to stretch out Tanahashi's neck. He aims the majority of his kicks and forearms at the neck area. He even throws in a dropkick when Tanahashi is on all fours. One of the things I miss about the young Okada are the innovative Lucha-style submission holds he used to break out, a nod to his Toriyuman roots, and he uses them to great effect on the neck here. The tombstone piledriver has always been a key part of the Okada routine. It's the setup to the Rainmaker, and he has developed several variants over the years. It has ultimately become the signal to dozens of opponents that the end is nigh. Back in 2012, none of these patterns had been developed yet. It's so interesting to look back at how, even then, Okada uses the move to punctuate the match with big moments. His first attempt is blocked, the second he hits in the ring, and the third he hits on the floor, a huge turning point in the match, and one that puts the ace and his injured neck in real trouble. Tanahashi, realising he now has a real battle on his hands, falls back on tried and tested methods to reassert his authority. And so, he goes after the leg. You know the routine. Dragon screw after dragon screw from every possible angle. Drop kick to the knee. Clover leaf. What is hugely impressive here is Okada's limb selling. Here he is, on the biggest stage of his life, with little prior experience, and he diligently remembers the finer details as well as the bigger ones. At one point, 
he sells his own knee after hitting the tombstone. The kind of nerdy little detail that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. When he gets the knees up to counter a high fly flow, he writhes about on the canvas and screams in agony. When he hits an elbow off the top, he again remembers to sell the effect of the landing on his own injured knee. It's the kind of thing that buys both wrestlers a little time and adds so much to the drama and realism of the match. For me, the little things like these separate the good wrestlers from the great ones. It seems so obvious, yet is so often forgotten in the needless hurry to get to the so-called good part of the match. It is a diligence that sadly deteriorates as the years go on, and is one of the many reasons I find the young Okada far more interesting a wrestler than the dead-eyed stoic ace he would later become. Indeed, even four months later, in the next match of the series, his leg selling is much more patchy. But that's a story for another day. A slightly misplaced Okada dropkick causes Tanahashi to lose a tooth, or at least a portion of a tooth. Although completely unintentional, the sight of his bloodied mouth and missing central incisor as he desperately struggles to escape one of Okada's unique cravat holes only adds to the sense of drama. The closing portion of the match is simple, logical and wonderfully executed. There are none of the reversal heavy, intricate sequences for which New Japan would soon become famous and later derided. Watching with 2021 eyes, honestly, it's a huge relief and a breath of fresh air. Okada goes for the Rainmaker, Tanahashi reverses it with a sling blade. When Tanahashi tries to repeat the trick again, however, the Rainmaker is ready and evades him. Even at this late stage in the game, when the writing is very much on the wall, Tanahashi again fundamentally underestimates Okada's ability to think on his feet. Ultimately, this is his fatal error, and it is ruthlessly exploited by his opponent. A single Rainmaker Lariat, one of the best Okada would ever hit, and sold brilliantly with a Tanahashi flip bump, is enough to topple the ace. It is a shockingly simple and straightforward but highly effective finish. Not only has Okada beaten the ace, he has done so decisively, unequivocally, without caveat. Like the Cameroon in 1990, he came to the big stage with a plan and executed it perfectly. And just like those heroes from Africa, he thoroughly deserves his victory against an opponent who never gave him the right amount of respect from the start. The young lion has found his roar and has himself become an indomitable lion, new king of the pride. As an example of a top wrestler doing everything in his power and being willing to show his ass in order to elevate someone to his level, there are few matches in history that stand beside it. The obvious comparison is the Jumbo Masawa match we touched upon in episode 1. It is every bit the seismic moment in history that their match was for all Japan 20 years earlier. It is a similar catalyst for a golden era that would propel New Japan to new heights both in and out of the ring for the next decade. And in the same way that a young Masawa stepped up to the plate, so too did Okada with stunning and immediate effect. Every time I watch this match, I enjoy it and appreciate it more. At 23 minutes, it is an efficient and compact match that never drags for a second. It's a far cry from the bloated epics that have seemingly become mandatory in present-day New Japan. Everything they do is important and has consequence and meaning. Obviously, being their first big championship match, 
they are not yet any callbacks for learned psychology. Rather, they are planting seeds and establishing narratives for the future. As a standalone match, it is good and enjoyable at a certain level. As in all walks of life, however, context is key. When you are aware of and appreciate what follows over the next decade, everything they do does take on even more nuance and meaning. The story of the dominant champion being toppled by the underdog pretender is a classic and irresistible narrative that resonates in real life as it does in pro wrestling. Just ask our friends from the Cameroon, who are still spoken about in reverential tones, even to this very day. Chapter 4. The Gamble There are certain songs that stay with you throughout your life drilled indelibly into your very consciousness, ready to be recalled word for word at a moment's notice. They can bring you back to a certain time or place or feeling in an instant, a quirk of the fascinating way the human brain operates. The song you will have heard in the intro to this episode is one such song. It's called From a Jack to a King, written and performed by Ned Miller in the early 1960s. When I was eight years old, we had no Spotify, no iPods or mobile phones. We didn't even have CDs yet. We had cassettes and cassette players. If you're listening and you remember rewinding cassettes back to the start with a pencil in order to spare your Walkman's batteries, you truly are a kindred spirit. In 1989, my father purchased a Ford Escort with the extravagant luxury of a pre-installed cassette player. My father was, and still is, a creature of habit, the kind of man who takes great comfort in routine and repetition. He'll have the exact same breakfast every day, go for the same walk following the same route every day, and take a nap at the exact same time every day. He brought the exact same car for upwards of 30 years because his solid, reliable Ford Escort never let him down. And, true to form, he had one album on tape that he played over and over in the car as he ferried us to and from school and to various after-school activities. The singer was called Daniel O'Donnell, a god-awful Irish crooner. The Irish equivalent of Cliff Richard or Donny Osmond, if you will. The kind of man that every Irish mammy wanted their daughter to marry. I came to know every word of every song on that infernal album by heart. Recently, I've been watching The Crown on Netflix, an easy-to-consume series that I mainly enjoy because it fuels my innate contempt for the British royal family. To my surprise, one of the episodes used a version of From a Jack to a Queen as its intro song, a song I hadn't heard in 30 years. And yet, despite myself, I found myself humming along and remembering every word. It helped that the original was a far better version than the awful cover the old man had tormented us with for years. What I didn't realise as a child is that it's a song about gambling and a song about love. I found the original on Spotify and discovered to my surprise a clever and charming little song, full of the types of wordplay and puns that I find amusing. The singer equates finding the love of his life with gambling on a hand of poker. Ultimately, he risks it all, and in doing so, secures the love of his life. And could there be a more apt song to play us in and out of this podcast? Because in 2012, 
New Japan management were playing the highest of high-risk, high-stakes poker. On January 31st, 2012, Road, a fast-growing media company with trading cards as its core business, had purchased New Japan Pro Wrestling. Its president, Takaki Kidani, was a huge wrestling fan. In order to justify the $4.5 million they had spent to obtain the company, Bushiroad needed to see a quick return on their investment. They needed to start off their tenure with a bang, a statement of intent. The ascent of Okada from figure of derision to champion almost overnight is one of the boldest gambles and greatest payoffs in wrestling history. No one would have blamed them if they'd changed direction after the debacle that was Okada's showing at Wrestle Kingdom. But Gato, the head booker, kept his cool and showing admirable fortitude, calmly played the hand he had planned all along. And just like Ned Miller winning the affections of his lover, the return for New Japan was huge and immediate. Okada took to main event wrestling like a fish to water. He followed up his flawless performance at the new beginning with a series of great matches throughout 2012, including high-quality title defences against Tetsuya Naito and Hiroki Goto. Before long, he had made believers out of the Japanese public. Even sceptics like Meltzer, who had dismissed him a few months prior, were showering him with praise by the summer. Gato had created a star overnight, and neither he nor his protege ever looked back. It is truly one of the fastest and most flawless ascents to greatness in wrestling history. Nobody was laughing at the Rainmaker anymore. But in the background, an ace was nursing his wounds, waiting for his shot at redemption. He had underestimated the young champion once, and he would never make the same mistake again. For the first time, Kazuchika Okada had Hiroshi Tanahashi's full and undivided attention. Just a little while I thought that I might lose the game Then just in time I saw the twinkle in your eye From a jack to a king From loneliness to a way 